Hey, what's going on? This is your boy Gallagher, and this is Common Conversations. And I have my beautiful friend sitting across from me. Hi, friends. Look, she does it so well. Y'all know Missy. Missy, what you been up to? All the things traveling this beautiful state of Indiana. Yeah? Yeah. Awesome sauce. Yes. So we're going to talk to Missy about traveling all the state of Indiana. But if you're first and new to the podcast, this is a podcast about social equity, all the things unscripted, scripted that we want to talk about every day in our lives, right? Or technically all the things we do talk about in our lives, whether it's politics, racism, sexual abuse. Um, how you made your first million and when you lost it. We will package it all, throw it in a box and have that discussion. And it's authentic, right? It's it's unapologetic. And Missy and I have been on this amazing journey. She's on these, the, her own journey, kind of finding the BFE areas of Indiana. Not wrong. You <laughs> are not wrong. <laughs> I mean, Indiana has a lot of BFE areas. Ooh, most of the time I'm like, it all looks the same. Where am I? Yeah. That's a field. That's a field. I don't know. Okay. It's it's neat. So if you guys are listening and you've never seen Missy, Missy is this beautiful white lady who travels in Indiana and says, I wouldn't go there. And it's neat because as a black dude, I've traveled much of Indiana and I just take my gun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I always find it funny. She doesn't have one of those because she is, she is powerful. She's the gun. She is the tool. Oh, um, and there it is. My gun is just a big paperweight. <laughs> you know, it holds down the papers when we're driving down the street so they don't fly out the window. That's all. There you go. <laughs> you should yeah. see her face right now. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Sometimes we have a camera on sometimes we don't but you know we have we've we've launched this equity series and we've been talking all year about all the things literally all the things right social justice we've talked about black economics um we just came out of our less talk mental health series which we did live so if you're listening um if you jump over to our youtube channel you'll have an opportunity to watch some of the projects that we do live as we have open panel discussions much like how we podcast and then our audience gets to ask um fun and crazy questions that we sometimes extract and or leave there. <laughs> no, the audience participation and what they bring and the questions they bring are so, so important. And I wish when we were podcasting, we had more input, but it's just me and you, friend. Well, you know, I, true story. So we should just ask for more input. So if you're listening to the podcast and you'd like to journey back and listen to all the podcasts that we've done and leave us a note, send us a comment. You're mo we're more than welcome to do that. Please do. You can no travel. Way. Yeah, there it is. See, amazing. And we might respond. I mean, just a little bit. Well, and definitely take that into account. But also, if you have a thing that you want us to talk about that we haven't yet or a person that you think we need to talk to, I want to know that. Absolutely. So right now, our biggest focus in terms of talking to people have been local heroes, right? Not the rich and famous, not big fan club people. It is folks who have boots on the ground, mm -hmm. who have real life experience. They have some data as well, but they bring all that to the table and so that we can have an open dialogue. And sometimes we get to discover things that we wouldn't otherwise here. For sure. And and so today, who do we have with us? Today we have Jenny Wigland. All right. She's with the mustard seed. But Jenny, I want you to tell us about that, about that journey. Um, what is the mustard seed? And what do you do there? Sure. The mustard seed is a thrift store. We're actually two thrift stores currently and have hopes of expanding. But I am the founder and currently the director of missions at the Mustard Seed, and we're a whole lot more than a thrift store. So the original idea, which stays true to today, was that we would open up a place where people could come, they can shop, get cool things, but even more so that it would be a place where they could have permission to both learn and acknowledge and say that they were sexually abused as children. I'm motivated because I'm a survivor and I know that, and, and I experienced childhood sexual abuse through much of my life as a child. And I know that it is so difficult for people to come forward and just acknowledge the, these things that are socially very difficult to talk about. So we are trying to 
bridge that gap. And and then we are funding direct care services for people who were sexually abused as children. So we help organizations that are helping. We help fund direct counseling services and through some providers that we've we have selected and partner with. So it's exciting to watch the the organization grow, but it's even more exciting to watch the mission grow. As we I mean, you know, when you look at, you know, 7 years ago when we opened for people to come forth and say, "Hey, this happened to me." It was it was a whole lot less common. And now, you know, we have people coming in and we partner with an organization called Soar Ministry who provide the group work and they also have several therapists that we that we send people to and you know at least a quarter of the people that were that were in group last year were as a result of the mustard seed because they came they learned about the services through us so it's super encouraging for us and um and it really should be super encouraging for the community uh the more that we have people healed up the stronger we are going to be as a community so you mentioned soar ministries can you talk Mm -hmm. about that and what that stands for Sure. So SOAR stands for Survivors of Abuse Restored. They are a local organization in Sellersburg. They provide group work. It's it's primarily support group work. They do have a therapy group that is starting up this fall for adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. They also provide, a, of course, one-on-one counseling to people who feel like they need that for people who are sexually abused as children. I'm curious if if I may jump in here. We, we, you're talking about survivors of sexual abuse, so we're talking about adults, right? How often do you find adults who are willing to come forward after the fact, right? And talking about past trauma, past violence, and how do you teach coping skills? Well, at the mustard seed, we're not necessarily teaching coping skills. I, I mean, that's why we we want to get them into counseling, into support groups, and those kind of environments. But what we see is that there is a disparity between, you know, if you're a male that is willing to, to acknowledge their sexual abuse. And men, men have a much more difficult time because it still is more socially taboo. There's a lot, you know, there's still a lot of blame or people make light of it and say, oh, hey, you know, you were 12, you know, that was not really sexual abuse because, you know, for whatever reason. But it's it's the way that people communicate. I think females have an easier time in that sense. It's not easy still as, as a female. It's certainly not easy for females to say, hey, I I was sexually abused. But when we offer people a place, when we offer people an environment that says, you know, hey, if if these things happen to you as a child, I know it's really hard for you to talk about, but here is a community that is ready to embrace you. So it's a it's about making a, sp- a safe place. I, I go back to I read the book The Body Keeps the Score mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a couple of years ago, and it really impacted not only my own healing journey, but it impacted how the, just the lens that I see other people through. And what Vanderkolk says is, you know, one of the best predictors of people, you know, getting well and and being able to really engage in their their recovery, their healing journey is safety. And you need safe people. You need a safe community around you to to walk and journey through 
those things with because your whole life, you know, your whole interior life feels unsafe, you know? So if you have some external safety measures, some safety people, you know, sometimes it's just having somebody at the end of the phone just saying, hey, I'm here. I, I get it. I hear you. So so I'm, I want to put together some of the things that we're talking about. So you mentioned the body keeps the score. And I think that that's such an important thought for us to bring into the conversation right now mm-hmm. is the trauma that people are carrying and how that trauma then manifests either in physical illness or in the way that they are then interacting with the world around them and the way that they are not able to reach their full potential because of the trauma that they are carrying. And if we think for a second about the high percentage of people that we know, and these are just the reported numbers, um, the high percentage that 25% of girls will encounter um, childhood sexual abuse. And we again, we know that number to be low um, and a comparable number for males. So by the time they reach adulthood, you have a quarter of our population carrying trauma that is likely they have not disclosed and sought treatment for and and began their healing journey that you mentioned. What do we do with that when we have that high a percentage of our population, of our friends, our community, our neighbors who are walking wounded and then not able to be the members of the community that they could have been had that not happened? Well, I think you make a great point. And, you know, so when we look at, you know, childhood sexual abuse, and, and, and you're right, you know, the numbers really are high, you know, and they're they're probably higher, you know, mm-hmm. just based on what we see. But, you know, I was just reviewing some of the research this morning, and, and it is estimated that over, t- it is, it costs a survivor over $200,000 a year in in the lost wages in the in the medical bills and it's so $200,000 a year for somebody who was sexually abused as a child and that is a I mean you know it's kind of mind blowing I mean you know they may you know we may estimate okay well their average salary is going to probably be $60,000 but if you have lost wages if you have additional medical costs you have all sorts of addition you know mental health issues you have you know all of those things Add to the, contribute to the to the cost of you know just on the economic level, but you look at the, those micro level experiences of you know relationship issues, substance abuse issues. Um, I mean, you, you just keep naming those those symptoms and the outcomes of somebody who is unhealed. How do you start engaging a population that that are the walking wounded, like you say? Um, and I think we have to start with making it okay for people to just say it, say the words. Hey, I was sexually abused as a child and I need help. And there needs to be resources on the receiving end. So let's talk about resources. I think that it's so important that you have identified a support group setting and that SOAR kind of walks through a curriculum, which is interesting and that's good to know. First, when someone is willing to to make that um, that step and say, I was a victim of childhood sexual abuse, in your experience, what is a a good landing place for that first step, for that footfall. Who do they talk to? Who do they tell first? Well, I mean, you know, if you look at kids, kids oftentimes tell somebody in the school system. So, you know, that that, that it's usually some sort of adult who finds out that ends up getting reported. It might be a family member, but a lot of times it's, it's the school system. People who tell, you know, I think people tell others for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes it's just, you know, it's a lot of times as an adult and, and what, what I know through SOAR and through my own, my own recovery is that, you know, I put all this stuff away, you know, I left home and got my life going and it wasn't until my mid to late thirties that, 
my mind really was maybe in a safe place to start dealing with it. Right. And you kind of look over the landscape of your life and you're like, holy cow, you know, and somebody might look at the landscape of the life. I didn't, I didn't have addiction issues, but I had all sorts of other, I had relationship issues. I was very introverted. I didn't, I just kind of cut myself off from relationships. And, you know, there's a lot of other damaging things that can happen. So my first step was, actually, I found out about SOAR through, you know, because they, because there was some advertisement for them on uh, a a monitor at our church. Okay. And so that's how I found out about them. And so that was my vehicle to to tell mm-hmm. somebody, but um, it might be a friend. But a lot of times, you know, it's like what we teach, you know, what, what is taught in SOAR when you're first at the very beginning of your journey is finding safe people to talk to about it. Right. Because not everybody is going to respond the right way. There's a lot of people who will use, you know, blame language, like, you know, why didn't you tell sooner? Right. You know, you right. literally just turn the blame on the, on the victim when you say that. So finding safe people to tell, you know, you can come talk to us at the Mustard Seed and we will connect you to people who really can help. You know, talk, call a therapist, call, you know, talk to a school counselor, talk to your pastor if you need to, you know, talk to people that are in your life that that can help propel you towards the resources that, that are needed. That's I, that's why this mustard seed exists. We want to be able to be a place where where you can just say, hey, that happened to me. And what you're going to receive, if that is your story, is I hear you, care about what happened to you. I want to get you some resources to help you. When you, when you think about resources and you tie that to people who have a story that they want to tell, right? How do you, we, we consistently say safe, right? Because um, people do, they want safety. But history tells us not all spaces are safe spaces, whether it's culture, whether it's the different upbringing dynamic. How, how, do, how does one who wants to seek help, right? How do we build trust immediately and how, how do they identify and or gauge what is a safe space for them? Go ahead. I think that's a, that's a great question, and I think that a lot of survivors are going to struggle with that. A lot of survivors, whether they're they're survivors of, of, of sexual abuse, child abuse, domestic violence, their their radar, you know, our radar is is sometimes a little off. You know, it's hard to tell, and that's why we have to teach who who would be a good person to talk to because we don't know. And so, you know, from my experience, it has been identifying. A, a trusted friend who has who has over the course of time demonstrated reliability, demonstrated support. Again, going to you know some mental health professionals, engaging in in some of our community resources like like New Hope, like the Mustard Seed Center for Women and Families. Um, so engaging in some of the the organizations that that will believe you and and can react. But, you know, overall, I really think that, you know, I go back to what I first said, is that finding somebody that has already demonstrated reliability, especially if you're talking to an adult survivor, because you might just need a little bit of help just getting getting you to to go to the next step of, okay, now I'm ready to talk to, a, you know, a counselor. What, what, if you don't mind, and, and, and I mean, Missy, you do a lot of this work as well. And so I, I wonder for a listener who is a victim or survivor of who has created their own community, right? Stepping into a community that does direct work like this. What, what is safe? What, what does safety look like? What do you think safety looks like to them? And then how does the organization build trust, right? Where trust we know within survivors is, is rare, right? They, they, well, they trust what they know. 
and so they see people through different lenses and and so i you know, we all, i also know i come from a you know a child of survivor of domestic violence and and watch my mom go through all these journeys with you know my my fathers i say fathers cuz she was married plural but each had their own way of violence sometimes it was physical sometimes it was mental sometimes it was economic sometimes it was like full on psychological warfare and i remember witnessing these things right and so i know as a as a as an adult how that affected me as a child and it created it created barriers for people who fit a certain personality type whether they were women or whether they were men specifically used to be men right and then we started learning as I, I would go down this journey that you know through through personality types through body mannerisms through how person carried their voice it would trigger me. But that took a long time to learn. And so for a long time, I wouldn't seek help because the person who was sitting across from me was in, would, would emulate that very trigger. So, so that's why I asked that question. I know for us in the model that we use, the Healthy Families model, we teach um, reflective strategies that take some of that language that can be the triggering language that, um, like you mentioned, the blaming language, and also puts our families that we serve in a place of reflection where they're able to move out of their brainstem where you're more in that survivor space. Um, when you're triggered or when you are fearful, you move back into the brainstem because that's our, our more, um, feral is not the word, but it's a word that's coming to me. Me, our more primal space of surviving. And when you use reflective strategies, you move people up into their frontal cortex that brings them out of that emotional response and into a place where they can problem solve and they can be present. And we we teach our our staff um, and our support specialists that go out and do prevention work, these strategies, and make pe- making people aware of that language, that blaming language. People don't tend to realize, and we believe deeply in this project, um, we believe that people want to be good. We believe that people want to do what's best for the community. And that's why we're talking about this. What can we as community members do when someone discloses to us, the last thing that we want to do is ask the um, why questions tend to be blaming. So when you say, why didn't you or why did you? Why did you react that way? Why didn't you tell someone? Then you are creating a space of blame. Um, And so avoiding those questions and asking the other questions, how can I help you? How can I support you? Who can we talk to? Those are the the words that we should default to rather than putting someplace in a, someone in a space where they have to defend themselves. Now, Jenny, what do you think? I, th- I think that's a great springboard for understanding how, 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 how do you respond? How do you, how do you engage with somebody? You know, that the, the blaming language is obviously, you know, people don't, don't mean to do that. It is, you know, sometimes it's something that is in their own, you know, like, like you referred to as that it's part of their own family culture. It's their own environment that, that leads them to ask those questions, but, but moving into a space of what can we do to help? And, and knowing that, you know, as a community, that there are ways that you can help by, you know, whether it is, you know, supporting organizations, you know, financially, you can give to the mustard seed, you can, you can give donations or whatever, but, you know, financially fund other organizations that, that do the work, but being part of the narrative, being welcoming of the information. I mean, you don't know how many people will, will 
you know, and even people, you know, in, it, who are who are in the work, you know, who are service providers who who don't really want to deal with it and may not ever even ask the question, but just willing to be invita- invitational to, you know, if somebody wants to talk about or if somebody is starting to share that, you know, it may not be something that you feel like you can handle. And you can say, I, I don't know really what to do with this information, but I care about what happened to you. I mean, I, I you know, for as a survivor, as somebody who, you know, who has disclosed, you know, in the past, for somebody to just say, hey, I care about what happened and I want you to be able to get help and get free of this. I know I can see that it's, it's really impacted your life. I'm hearing you. And um, and then, you know, follow that up with how can I help? I love that. It's, it is amazing to me. Um, you know, we hire caseworkers, social workers, home visitors who have that caring heart and that empathetic spirit, but even that population, teaching them how to ask the question I can't tell you how many home visitors when you're training them to ask these, because it's something that we ask every family that we serve. When you were young, did you feel safe in your body? Was there anyone who made you feel unsafe? Uh, were you a victim of childhood sexual abuse? We we come out very early in our services and ask that question explicitly. How many of our staff have to really be coached through asking because it feels too personal and private? I am curious about that. As we've been talking, my brain is, is churning, thinking, why is it? Why... Is it such a taboo? I know that it is. I can feel in my body that it is. But why is it? Because if we believe that the child was a victim, had no blame in that, why do we feel that we can't ask and that we can't explore that with someone? My first reaction is because it is so inherently evil. Childhood sexual abuse is inherently evil. Mm -hmm. And it is unthinkable for for most of us, you know, those of us who are not perpetrators, to to do those type of things to a child. So, I mean, I think that that's where we start. And, you know, if people have that kind of history themselves, they they might recoil from it also because, you know, as, as because they're also in denial. It's just, you know, cover it up, push it away. I don't even want to think about it. And um, so that I, I don't want to listen because, you know, because it, it's triggering something in me. It's, it's, mm-hmm setting off some a whole slew of feelings that I don't even understand. Right, and you're in that even escalated connect. space. Right. You don't even connect. You might not even connect that, you know. You talked about earlier that the the connection of, you know, somebody saying something and it triggers you. You don't even understand sometimes when you're in the setting why when somebody says something or what has happened that is connecting to your the, your experiences connecting to those emotional pieces in your experience that that maybe don't don't even have the images or or whatnot that are that are present. I think that's such an important statement to say we don't always know what takes us to that escalated space and to have permission to explore that. One of the things that we talk about when we're doing um, we're having these these conversations that may escalate people is notice where you feel that in your body mm-hmm. and don't judge it but interrogate it. Why is why is my stomach hurting? Now that we're in in listeners, I'm I'm being very cognizant that this conversation may be doing that for you, maybe bringing you into an emotionally escalated space or bringing anxiety. And I want to give you permission to take a deep breath and breathe through that and interrogate that. Be curious about what your body is telling you. And hopefully this conversation 
can bring freedom to you to, to know that um, it is okay to talk about this and in your time and in your space when you feel safe to do so and that there are resources that the mustard seed is there to hear you and that they have people who are trained to have that conversation, which is amazing. I am, I would like to shift if that's okay to talk about resources. We believe the, the foundation of this project is that if the community knew that there was a gap, that there was something happening that was affecting their neighbors, their community, and Again, that we want our community to be as a thriving space where all can reach their potential. If we knew that 25% of our neighbors have experienced something that is possibly prohibiting them from reaching their potential, that the community would want to do something about that and to fill those gaps. In your experience, when you are doing this work, do you find that there are gaps in services? And what are those? And then maybe we can talk through together what it would look like to fill those holes. Absolutely. Well, I think there's there's a lot of gaps in service. Remind me of the um I think that it, that yeah, the first part being if what are the gaps in services and what does that look like for our community? So the in exploration of gaps in services for um, for childhood sexual abuse and and all and for for a multitude of other other issues like domestic violence, substance abuse, and and whatnot. I think that what what we find is that are huge gaps in service in the mental health piece. So you know, finding finding counselors, finding counselors that have that don't have a, a you know six month wait list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, some of this some of the service providers that I've talked to cannot hire people. They can't hire the therapists. They they've they've had um, job opportunities open for for you know a year plus and still can't hire people. So I, we you know we have those those serious issues. You know, we we talk about the um, um, we were talking about earlier off, you know, before we came on about the domestic violence piece. You know, we understand that people who are sexually abused as children, you know, they have a higher likelihood of being, being you know, also involved in domestic violence. And to not have that piece in, you know, in, in our community, we have some we have some really great resources, but I don't think that we have enough and I don't think we have enough funding for those resources. So I want to go back and, and talk about a couple of the things you said. First, that there are places where we have job openings in Southern Indiana that have had therapists, you know, have a need for therapists for over a year and they can't hire partly because their funding does not allow them to compensate the therapists in the way that those that they deserve to be compensated. Absolutely. And we we named some names specifically, we won't necessarily do that here, that there are people doing this work and doing this work well. But the wages that they are able to pay because of their funding sources, you could make working at McDonald's. That's that's the absolute truth. If you if you look at it, you know somebody who's licensed, they're going to go through four years of school, you know, doing their undergraduate work, and then they're going to do another two year, at least two years of school for their masters, and you know, spend a whole a whole all kinds of money and only to be compensated you know a little over forty thousand dollars is a it's a very tough sell you know even if you're getting somebody who's straight out of school the the other opportunities that they would have are you know they're trying to they're they're living their the same lives that that you and me are living that that you listeners are living where they're just trying to make ends meet and so you know they're they want to be helpful they they got into this this industry because they have a heart to help people but they also have to make a living and make, you know, make those choices. So, you know, we see them going into in, in different industries. You, we talked about going into school system or going, you know, going into private practice where it's a lot more lucrative, lucrative. 
for them. Sure. And a lot of times then what happens and what we're finding is if you go into private practice, you don't have to accept insurance because there's a high enough uh, percentage of the population who need mental health services that they're willing to pay out of pocket to do that. And that creates a huge gap for our families that are not able to afford mental health services without the aid of insurance, especially state insurance. We need more therapists and organizations who are able to accept that state insurance to reach these populations. Well, that I think that's undoubtedly the the case. Um, and then you know you go to those those state and local organizations who are phenomenal. I mean, they're doing some of the hardest work. Truly, you know, we talk about you know people who are doing the forensic interviews for for kids and working with the populations directly out of you know directly out of their situations. And you know, if you're we're only able to hire people that are you know fresh out of school, which that that is great. They all, everybody needs a training ground and everybody has, you know, a great skill set. But, you know, in order to maintain and keep people and and build those skill sets and have robust services that can really get to the root of those issues so that these people can actually move on with their lives and move into that, you know, you, as you mentioned, those productive, you know, living to their fullest potential, that, that's where we land. Is You know, we want to see that and connect those dots. So specifically, you know, we're, we're talking about Clark and Floyd County and, and we're saying, okay, here's a reality where we have public um, support systems, right? So here we're talking a Wellstone, we're talking Clark Memorial Hospital, Floyd Memorial Hospital, Life Springs. And in this space, we're, you know, we're identifying that our our top performing organizations that are, are here to help survivors of domestic violence, child abuse, and even work in the world of prevention are underpaying the talent that you would actually want to have on board in order to help, right, heal the community. And that's an interesting piece that you say that. And so I wonder, you know, I would love to invite some of them, definitely they're, they're those who manage those organizations. Why is it that we're paying below a livable wage to practitioners? And so if you're listening and, and, and you don't know that, so most social workers have to go to school two years, right? And so they come out with a master's degree, six years. Okay. So yeah, I see two, sorry, six years. Yes. Two after, right? It's the four plus two. Um, so they come out with an MSW. Um, you'll get a lot of licensed therapists who have a variety of um, initials behind their names. But a lot of times, again, master's degrees, multiple, they have to go through a degree of, uh, I don't want to call it recertification, but making sure that they stay up with their licensures. Um, But then there's also different practice, right? So they all have, you know, whether they're practicing TA or EMDR um, in order to help traumatize communities. Um, And so those degrees are really expensive and they're really, they're really great um, at what their jobs are. I, I, I challenge and I wonder because when you when I think about having someone fresh out of college, um, whether it's undergrad or graduate school, walking in saying, hey, now that I have my shield, I'm going to put it on a wall and I'm going to serve you right? With, without any real supervision from people who have real life experience and tenure wisdom to guide them through that journey to help people in trauma. How much more damage are we potentially causing in that space? Right. And, you know, I, I just I listen like I know everything is not about money, but people definitely need to make a living. Um, and I know that the CEOs and the vice presidents of these organizations 
organizations here locally make well into the six figures. And I find it amazing that we're not hiring the talent that we need at the rate that they should be compensated. Um, I know this is a long-winded statement and it's probably more of a statement than it is a question. I did a podcast. I don't, I can't remember if it was last year or this year. And I learned that historically the social work um, field was created by white men and white women, right? To make, basically manage what women could do when they got into the work field. Um, and then they put a cap on salaries, right? So that women did not um, make more than their husbands. Now, I, you, you have to do your own research to dig into that. But I wonder if that's still society's norm. Um, so when we think about community support and community help in the sense of wages, and we're talking, y- y'all brought up several times, folks who are being economically disenfranchised against being in these spaces. And so they require Medicaid and state insurances in order to get health care, right? And mental health is part of health care. Uh, coming, you know, survivor support is part of health care. You know, I wonder if we still have the same bias, the same stigma, the same systemic issues that are ingrained in society as a whole that limit the ability to truly treat and help and support the so-called community um, that we're helping. I, you know, I, I wonder even, you know, I know that this is a long brain fart. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, I wonder even, you know, as we talk about Life Springs and Wellstone and as they are organizations in our community, I wonder if the people that they serve, they even see them as community. That's a really good question. I also wonder sometimes if there isn't somebody who's benefiting from keeping people unhealthy. Mm. And if that's the route that we need to find, who benefits from keeping a large portion of the community unhealthy? I also wanted to go back to something that you said about women not making more than their husbands. What we find if you are in these professions, and you you are married to a therapist, so you know, that if you go into therapy, if you go into social work, if you go into teaching, then it's a passion. And therefore, they'll say, we don't have to pay you as much because part of your compensation is the good that you're doing. The good that we're doing doesn't put food on the table, nor does it pay my mortgage. But that's how it's seen. That's why you can see teachers being underpaid and therapists and helpers. Helpers are underpaid because you do this out of the the goodness of your heart. So, well, you know, we'll pay you to keep you alive, but to thrive is a different thing. And then you, one of the things we mentioned in our mental health panel is the uh, possibility of transference at that point, because you have case managers and social workers who are hearing these stories um, saying, I can't pay my bills. And in the back of their the home visitor's mind or the helper's mind, they're like, mm, me either. But it's then that person's job to help problem solve ways to that the family in front of them gets their needs met when they can't get their own needs met. And then you have unhealthy people serving unhealthy people. And how can we be truly effective if that is our cycle? Yeah. I, th- I also, and and this is something that I, I I can't speak truly intelligently about, but you know, you, it's not just the the organizations that are are creating the framework for the compensation. I mean, you know, you look at you know how well how much is Medicaid going to pay? You know, how much? I mean, and how many therapists don't want to take Medicaid because it's just it's just a pain. It's really tough. It oh, they don't. Billing is they, a night exactly. So you know, you're th- that's why people go and and go and just you know don't take insurance the insurance panels and whatnot, because it's just too much of a pain and they don't get compensated appropriately uh, or it takes a long time or 
or, you know, all, it's, it's not worth the energy. And so who really is hurt by that? It is the disenfranchised. It is the people who are, you know, just trying to get help. And they're going to the only places that they, they know and they can, and they don't, they don't get adequate help. And, and a lot, you know, and I can't, I certainly couldn't say that. I think LifeSprings and, and the, these organizations do a great job with the tools that they have. But I think that, that we as a community can support them in, in a more robust way and maybe, you know, moving into, okay, can we look at people? Could we look at legislation? Could mm-hmm. we look at, you know, the bigger picture of, you know, who do we have to talk to about, you know, increasing VOCA funding, you know, the Victims of Crime funding, which has been cut, which is monstrous to me. I think, you know, we if, if you really want to deal with these issues of substance abuse, of, of you know, all these things that, that stem from trauma, then we have to deal with the trauma. We can't just put a Band-Aid on something, you know, if, if you're if you're dealing with substance abuse and you never get to why you know what what caused you to start down that cycle? I don't I don't see a, a true pathway out, a long-term pathway. You might get a, a short-term, but I don't see a long-term pathway that's out. I love that you identified that policy might be where we have to mm-hmm. to move to and move our eyes to. And people who listen to this podcast are looking for a way to help. And that is a way to get involved to help. We are all voters. We all have the right to vote and therefore we should exercise that right. And we need to push the people that we put in those offices to make the choices that truly affect and lift up their community. And these are people in the community. People who receive state funding and state insurance are community members. These are the people who are our neighbors. And when we make policy based on the top percentage of the echelon and not all with all in mind, then those are the people who get hurt, continually hurt, continually marginalized. And we need to make sure that our votes give voice to those who are marginalized. So we talked about mental health care. I would like to talk about, as we're moving into October, we're moving into Domestic Violence Awareness Month, you mentioned that people who um, were victims of childhood sexual abuse are more likely to find themselves in abusive cycles in their adulthood, and also people who are in, currently in abusive cycles are perpetuating possibly unknowingly, very unknowingly, without intent, those cycles for their own children, because their children are are seeing the abuse and witnessing domestic violence, um, Miguel, as you mentioned, is trauma in itself. And it is abuse that you are experiencing vicariously through the person that you care about the most. What services have you found in the community when it comes to domestic violence services? Well, I mean, obviously, the Center for Women and Families is is at the top in, in the Louisville metro area, um, also over here in southern Indiana. We have some... We have some church groups that are doing some pretty pretty great work. I know Southeast of Southern Indiana is doing some really great work. And then you have up in Salem, Hoosier's Health uh, Hoosier's Pact that mm-hmm. are making some some headway into domestic violence. I know that you know with the mustard seed we don't we don't focus on domestic violence, but it but it is something that that comes up regularly. You know, people are coming in looking for resources, and oftentimes that is it, there is a domestic violence piece to it. And um, you know, it it has been hard to find a safe place for people. It has been hard to understand where where they can get help. We don't have any beds over on this side of the river, and I think. I want to pause on that because yep. I think one of the, in, in what we talked about, the foundation of the the project, again, being if people knew what was really happening in their community, mm-hmm. they would work to fix that. We believe that people are inherently good. I'm looking at Miguel's face and he's like, oh, do we? But we do. <laughs> <laughs> we 
or we wouldn't be doing this. And the idea that people don't know what does not affect them. So if you are not someone who has been affected personally by domestic violence or worked with someone who has known someone who has, you may not be aware that there are no beds, which means there is not a shelter in Southern Indiana in Clark and Floyd County for victims of domestic violence. So if someone is ready to leave um, and they're in that place in their their decision-making process, there is not a shelter for them to go to. There is a shelter in Louisville that has a very limited number of beds. I think you named 79, but that's beds, not families, not family units. And as we have said before, we have to really make sure that we remember Southern Indiana is not Louisville. And people who live in Southern Indiana often cannot cross that river. It is not because it's too far, because it's scary. It's because our benefits do not transfer from one state to another. That going to Louisville changes everything. It also changes school systems. It creates huge barriers for people with children. So I really want to make sure that we make that known. There is no shelter in Southern Indiana. You mentioned PACT, and there is a home, at least there was a few years ago, a house there. It does not have a lot of beds. No, they don't have a lot of beds. They and they they're a, a, a shelter. They're they're a legit shelter. They do case management. They work, you know, and that's that is really some of the benefits from having a true emergency shelter. We do have organizations in town that that have housing for des- domestic violence, but not while they're in that initial emergency phase. And so how do so I'm, I don't mean to cut you off because I'm listening to the two of you. And, and and I find it amazing that we're we're sitting in Clark and Floyd County, Indiana, right? And we're saying our, our closest assistance for people who are in emergency or who are, are in transition is in another state, which does create a great deal of barriers just legally. And I'm not a lawyer, but I got to imagine, you know, if you're in a domestic violence situation and you need to run and you have kids and you take them across state line and some states that actually might be child abduction, right? And so now you, now you, that mother or father who's ever in that relationship has now created a crime in a way of escaping. And and so thinking about for those who are in child abuse prevention or child abuse and survivor, you know, support. If we are identifying that there is a void as as nonprofit organizations, you know, I wonder what the what, what is keeping these nonprofits right from investing in the actual issue, right? Because how can you protect a child if the parent isn't safe, right? How do you keep, you know, I got to imagine that a child who is abused in a home, if they're being abused by one of the parents, it's probably also the parent, one of the other parents is also equally being abused. So we're really missing an entire process here. And and, and so I'm, I'm wondering, what do we have to do to connect those who are getting resources in Southern Indiana to serve Indiana? Uh, serve Southern Indiana's survival community. I mean, because to me, I know it's 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 a complex web, but the reality, I think, for me, it's simple, right? If we're going to help people journey through this, whatever their their experience is, that we have to look at a whole map and say, well, if mom is being abused and the kid is being abused, well, transitional housing doesn't work when we have an emergency. You know, if dad or or, or dad is being abused and child is being abused, same thing, we don't have, right? Um, if we're talking about, and so I also want to say this too, domestic violence, child abuse, sexual assault is not 
is doesn't just happen in disenfranchised or economically challenged communities. There is no there's no salary. There's there's no living, you know, component that says, well, because I'm rich and wealthy, I'm not over here abusing somebody or sexually assaulting someone. So I, I also with that same statement, I wonder like where are the advocates, right? Where are the advocate agencies? We know they're in central Indiana, Indiana being Indianapolis, which is our capital, but they don't those resources typically don't travel south and we're we're almost 100 plus miles away. Um, we're two hours specifically from anything that would allow a person. So if someone doesn't have transport and that's at all, you know, if you're trying to escape a situation and you can't get into a vehicle or bus line or train to get to a safe space, then, you know, where do we go here? And it came out, a report came out in 2021 from our prosecutors in Clark County that I believe domestic violence was up 181% and there was like 98 deaths just in Clark County, right? Due to domestic violence. And I'm like, so we're, we're, we're seeing a pain point. We're seeing a problem, you know, and I wonder where the agencies are. So our Wellstones, our hospitals, our, our, uh, the life springs, where are they in the job of solution finding the new hopes, um, for these issues, or are they just getting the money that they get and they're keeping their head buried in the sand because, Hey, it doesn't fit our economic stability to really address the root issue and to begin to heal people. I mean, we talked about, we know insurance is a big, a big thing, but you know, what if, what if insurance isn't the issue, right? What if is it just the people sitting in the chairs who really have the power to wield a, a, a really a, a new space, a new safe space, right? If we can do that. And I think sometimes a, a, a brave space because we have to, I mean, I'm not a practitioner in the world of social work or therapy, but I, I do believe that if you're going to help someone, you have to be brave yourself, right? And I wonder if we have institutions and, and I, I welcome them to come sit with us, but I wonder if we have institutions who are not brave enough to help people for real, right? Um, because that would mean they would lose funding, right? Or that means that the sheriff who just beat his wife or rape somebody, you may actually have to face them, right? The fact that we may have jailers who are allowing rape to happen in our in our institutions, our, our, our inmate institutions, right? Where they should be safe, right? We may have to face that, you know, our prosecutors who are not going after those who will power, you know? So I, I have a lot of questions as we journey through this. And, and our podcast is about finding equity, which means sometimes we have to ask the question and face the thing that we're not willing to face in order to get to it. I, I appreciate like what y'all are sharing. Um, and it, it takes some thought. And I hope that our listeners, regardless of where you're listening at, you're asking the same questions in your own spaces, whether you're in Ohio or Utah, or maybe in another country, because domestic violence, sexual assault is a real thing. Trafficking is a real thing. And we face it. And, and the reality of it is, is that it may not be mass population. It may be such a small, minute part of our population, but it affects a mass amount of people, right? We know that billions of dollars are lost, both in GDP, et cetera, regardless of what region or, or country or state you're in that are directly related to sexual assault and domestic violence. I'm, again, one of my another long thought processes as I'm listening to y'all talk, I just, I'm, I'm wondering where are, where are resources, right? We have resources. So it's not like we're void of resources. Where are our thought leaders in these spaces saying, here are solutions instead of saying, this is what we don't have. I mean, have, have, have you seen those kind of conversations in the workspace yet? I'm, what I'm seeing when I'm talking to people is just a high level of overwhelm. Mm. And, you know, we 
talk back to um, Vanderkolk, but you know, when when you are in a situation where you're overwhelmed, you know, thought process actually break down. So you know, I, we see you know a flood of people who who need help and need the services, but we don't have the the services to provide, and it's it's a cyclical issue. Wow. We, we've, we've got to wrap up here in a minute. I know we've been at it and I want to, I want to be conscious of, of our listeners time, our time here today. If there, if there were any takeaways, if we, we think about health equity, we think about building trust and really providing agency and community to folks, right? So that they move from surviving into a thrival relationship, both with internal to themselves and external inside the spaces that they live in. What are, what are some tips? What are some takeaways that we can offer listeners to say, hey, here's how we might engage. Here's how we might ask. What are Here are ways that we might challenge the very system that says, hey, I support you, but it has voids. Oh, I mean, that's such a loaded question. I um, know. Sorry. I, I can't help myself sometimes. Well, you know, I I think, you know, we can, we can start on the micro level of what can you personally do. You know, you can be somebody who, you know, if this is your story um, that you you know, you know, you know me now. You can you can come into the mustard seed and and have a conversation with um, with us. And you know, if you need help, we'll connect you to resources that will that will provide that help. And uh, and on on you know, so be that person who gets to help them. You know, yourself support somebody who who this is their story, and you find out. You know, be that be that listening ear that will say, "Hey, I get you, and and I care." But I think we also need to address. You know, you know. Give give your money, donate your money to to organizations that are do, really doing the hard work. You know, centers doing just really hard work. The seeds doing hard work. New hopes doing hard work. You know, so there's there's organizations that are in town in our community that are valiantly trying, you know, and efforting to to make this these resources available for for people. Um, but I think that we need to move into macro level thinking, and mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. that policy that those policy elements. You know, how are we? How are we addressing the mental health community? How are we addressing our community mental health and um, you know the mental health you know people who are providing those forensic interviews and um, the child advocacy center like you know Comfort House that's up in Court and, and Family and Children's place here in um, here locally in Clark and Floyd. How are we how are we supporting these organizations and how is the money funding those organizations? How can we increase it to make their make their imprint? a bigger imprint because they're really limited at, as to what they can do. They can only do so much with the funding that they have. And, you know, I, yeah, that's where I land. And I think that it, we need to remember, friends, that we are moving into uh, the end of an election cycle. So November, we have mm-hmm. mayors who are coming up for election. We have lawmakers. And then we move into larger election cycles where we have state leaders, national leaders who are going to come up for re-election. And these are the questions we need to be asking. How are they really investing in our community in a real way that has lasting impact, not just you know investing in the business owners? Um, how are they investing in those who live in their community who want to thrive and yet don't have resources to do so? And are they even aware that those people exist? And if not, let's hold that their feet to that fire. Your community is more than those who can contribute to your campaign. Your your community is also those who just need to go to work and raise their family. And that's their, you know, that is their number one priority. And 
if you are in those spaces where you can influence those lawmakers, that's your role. That's what you need to be doing right now um, and advocate and lobby for those who are just trying to survive so they don't have time to advocate and lobby for themselves. You know, it's it's. I, I like that you said we're in this election cycle and everybody is, regardless of where you are in state, city, county, you know, you're gearing to vote for a commissioner or a city council or a mayor. If you're in Southern Indiana, you've got council people, commissioners that are coming up, but I, I would challenge listeners to call the mayor. You know, so if you're in if you're in Jeffersonville, call Mayor Mike Moore. Uh, call if you're in Charlestown, it's still part of Clark County, call Mayor Treva Hodges. Um, if you are in Floyd County, New Albany, uh, call Mayor Jeff Gahan and ask them specifically, what is the city's plan to support and how does it support, right? It's domestic survivors of abuse. Um, it's children of survivors who are also coming out of abuse. What programs do we have in place? What are we doing for in, a, in the role of prevention? If we're spending 50 or $100 million on infrastructure in our small towns, our, what is what is the equivalent budget to secure and support its community, its its future worker, its future elected per- person, its future CEO, and so on, right? I think it's important as we think about budgets, as we're talking about money, because yes, the individual can begin and be a big part of it. We can definitely do better in supporting organizations. They all have fundraising platforms, but I think we can even do more so because our tax dollars are being spent in our communities. And if you're telling me, if I'm seeing stats, like one out of every four persons will be in a domestic violent relationship. And that's a national average. I think I think in Southern Indiana, we, we had talked at one point in time that one out of every four girls, young girls will be sexually assaulted before they get out of middle school. And it's one out of every six boys um, that will be sexually assaulted before they get out of middle school. And that's just what's reported. If we're not as people um, looking at that, because that's our children. And anyone who's listening to podcast says, not my kid. Yes, it is. Right. Because um, what we didn't have an opportunity to talk about is that there are layers um, and, and, um, and many different types of sexual assault. It's not always through penetration, right? Um, and so we think sexual assault has to do specifically with rape, but there's lots of violence that is that is inflicted on us as a population of people. And I think we need to start addressing that. But call your mayors and let's see what their plan is. Let's see how they show up. And that's going to tell a real story. We've I've heard and I've learned today that we have resources in our community, both for survivors of, of child abuse and survivors of domestic violence, um, survivors of sexual assault. But what we tend to lack are some safe spaces, both in transition, right? How do we move from the the, the emergency into a thriving space, a safe and brave space? And our practitioners who are in this space may need to do a better job, right? We may have to have some thoughtly thinking that say, hey, how do we come up with new solutions? I know that Missy and I will be interviewing, um, uh, what's her name? I'm sorry. Zanibia Law. Law, who is with- um, Center for Women and Families. Center for Women and Families. We definitely are inviting the mayors to come sit down and talk with us as well, because we want to know. Um, this is not necessarily to exploit anyone, but it is to ask a question if, you know, a hard question that I think our community needs to have solutions. Because again, this podcast, this series is about how do we build equity in our spaces when we know that there's such a depravity there. Is that the right word? Can I say that? I don't know if depravity is the right word. Mm. Probably not. We're not going to edit because I use the wrong words all the time. We'll just let it run. Um, (laughs) But I appreciate this has been an excellent conversation. Um, Very insightful. Jenny, I appreciate you being here and sharing with us today. Uh, Hopefully you'll come back and hang out with us. I hope so. It's a 
privilege. Absolutely. Uh, anything we got? Any takeaways before we walk away out of here? No, other than in October, we do have two panels. We have one on substance abuse and we have one on domestic violence. And we're really excited. And I think Jenny's going to join us on that panel. Awesome. Yeah. So we get to see, well, we'll see you back. So October 25th is our is our substance abuse panel. And October 27th is our domestic violence um, panel discussion. They are in person. Um, so if you're listening and you're in Southern Indiana, you're welcome to come. They are free. Um, if you are listening and you want to watch them later, we do take those same platforms. We chop them up, edit a little bit, but then we throw it on YouTube and some other social spaces like our, our Facebook page where you can begin to watch and engage those as well. Other than that, my good people, it's a Friday where we're currently sitting. Yes, Friday. I am ready to check out. Same. It is also the beginning of a holiday weekend. It is. Fabulous. And if you're in the area, World Fest is starting. It started yesterday. Yes. So go over and venture World Fest. Get a little culture. Well, next year because it, well, it's passed by now. <laughs> well, okay. Well, there it is. It's World By the time you listen to this, it will be over. So hopefully you had an experience. Yes. Um, there it is. I know I will. Look, good people. This is your boy, Gelly Gale. This is Common Conversations with my host, Missy Smith. Yeah. And we'll holla at you later. Thank you for tuning in. Like, subscribe, all the fun stuff that you don't want to do. Ring the bell for the next episode. And oh, by the way, go over and over on Facebook. Facebook and highlighters. Peace, love, and hair grease. Bye, friends.